uh, of that glorious place. I mean, what, what's it going to be like? We have so many questions, and we would love to have them answered. That's what the Apostle Paul, uh, John essentially got was a, a, a vision uh, of the future new earth and new heaven. We don't get that. We don't receive visions. We're not going to get a literal vision of that, but we do have what Scripture tells us. In his word, God has provided us a glimpse. He has given us a description of heaven, the eternal state, and what he's given us is all we need to know. And the select few details we are given are staggering and mind-boggling and really overwhelming. Now, so far in Revelation chapter 1, we have found the following six facts about the final and future eternal heaven. We noted number one, it will arrive after the millennium. The millennium and the great white throne judgment take place in chapter 20. There's no reason to violate the grammar that we're given that's inspired by God to not see a chronological approach to the book of Revelation. It will arrive after chapter 20, the millennium. Second fact, we know it'll be different in form uh, than the present universe, the present earth. Uh, And one thing that's mentioned in the text is there'll be no sea. There'll be no need for the, uh, the water cycle as we know it. It'll be different in form. The second, the third fact that we noted together was it will have a capital city, and that's what we're looking at, the new Jerusalem. The fourth fact, it will center, the eternal state will center on God's presence. He says in chapter 21, verse 3, he says it more than one way, but in verse 3 he says, and he will dwell among them. Forever in God's presence. That's the center focus of heaven. And number five, it will be a state of perfect bliss. And we began to look at that last week. What it will mean to live in a place with no death and no sorrow and no tears and no pain. What a thought. The sixth fact, we got into it last week. Number six, it will have specific inhabitants. And it says that uh, in Revelation 21 that those who thirst... That's one way to describe the inhabitants, those who thirst for spiritual things, those whom God saves. They'll go to heaven. He also calls the inhabitants of heaven in verse 7 the overcomers. And that's where we left off, beginning of chapter, uh, verse 7 last time. I'll read verse 7 for us. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Uh, So the overcomers will be there. That's just another way to describe true believers. True believers are those who who thirst after righteousness, who thirst about spiritual things. Those who are true believers are the overcomers. They're those whose names are written in the book of life. We see that in the book of Revelation as well. Well, this idea of overcoming and inheriting these things, essentially our inheritance as overcomers is, is what we're studying. It's an eternity in the new heaven, in the presence of the triune God. That's our, et- our inheritance. This means that the eternal state, heaven, is our inheritance. And it means that it'll finally be a reality. And I say a reality because what we live with now is the pledge that was given to us. You find the wording of that pledge in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, in him, Christ, You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So we have a down payment. Those who are true believers live with this down payment. We have the Holy Spirit given to us as a pledge. But it's a pledge of something. It's a down payment. It's the engagement ring, so to speak. It's the promise of the full inheritance And that's heaven. What a wonderful promise. And look at verse 7 again. This is the best part of the promise is this. It's said different ways in chapter 21. And here it is again, verse 7. And I will be his God. His meaning the overcomer, the one who thirsts, the, the believer, the one whose name is written in the book of life. I'll be that person's God. Now that is uh, essentially the promise that was given to Abraham, if you'll think about it. Uh, all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. God comes to Abraham and makes him a promise, and the promise is to all his descendants as well. He says in Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between you 
and your descendants, between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. I mean, that was the amazing thing about the promise made to Abraham. And so here we see that this is then the promise that all believers are going to uh, reap the benefit of and enjoy throughout eternity in heaven. Now, the essence of that promise is a repetition of what I've said in verse 3. So let me just read verse 3 again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So what we see here in verse 7 is really a repetition of that thought that God is going to dwell among his people forever. It's just that now it's said even stronger, not just dwelling in our presence and our, uh, we be in his presence, but he will be our God forever. And equally amazing is this other part of the promise in verse 7, and he, the saved person, the overcomer, will be my son. That's the doctrine of sonship in Scripture. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where it occurs, but we certainly see it in biblical history. It's an old concept. It goes all the way back even to the promise uh, in the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Uh, Part of the Davidic covenant was uh, God said to David, I will be uh, your father, but also your, your descendant's father. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. It was a most immediately feel, uh, uh, fulfilled in, in uh, Solomon. But there's a messianic promise there. It referred ultimately to the great son of David, the Messiah, Jesus, who would come through David's line, the ultimate son. And then scripture teaches us then that the application for all believers is that all who are followers of Christ, all who are in Christ, have the same privilege of being son the same privileges of sonship because we are the adopted sons of the God of the universe. So a promise made to David that there's this one would come that would be the ultimate son inheriting all things. Scripture tells us that we are his adopted sons because we're in Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12, just a few verses on that. But as many as received him, Christ, to him, that person, to them, He gave the right to become the children of God, adopted children of God. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Ephesians 1, verse 5, on predestination, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So that's who we are. We are those who thirst after righteousness, spiritual things. We are the overcomers. We are the adopted sons and daughters. And because of that, we have this inheritance. Now, we have it now as a pledge. We taste it now. We have this status now even as adopted sons, the children of God. But in a temporal sense, it's only in future heaven that believers will come into their their full inheritance. It's only in heaven that our adoption will be fully realized. Let me just read Romans 8, 23 to you as well. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We are adopted, Scripture says, yes. But then Romans 8, 23 says, but we're waiting eagerly for it still. Adoption as sons, and then it has this thought, the redemption of our bodies. That's glorification. Well, all this is wonderful. God dwelling amongst us, we dwell in his presence. We enjoy our inheritance that we've been pledged forever. But we come to a drastic change in verse 8. On the subject of the inhabitants of heaven, not everybody goes there. It begins with this adversative, but. But something else is true for everyone else. With that little term, but, the topic changes. Now, instead of directly discussing the inhabitants of heaven, it's it's discussing the inhabitants of heaven by looking at the other side, those who are not there, the outcast. There's a contrasting list now of the types who will not inhabit heaven. 
It's a list of those who don't thirst after righteousness. It's a list of those who are not the overcomers. It's a list that represents all unforgiven and therefore unredeemed sinners. Now, this list is made up of eight categories of vices or sins, and it includes, it's understood, it includes those who commit these sins. Here's verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, idolaters and all liars, their place will not be in the new heaven. Before we finish that verse, let's just talk about these outcasts. The first group who won't be inhabitants in heaven, it says the cowardly. You could translate that the fearful. But it's referring to a particular kind of cowardice, not just general cowardice and fear. It's the kind associated with a lack of true faith and a lack of endurance in true saving faith. In other words, this is those. This represents those people who renounce their faith in Christ. They, they, they don't want to claim to be Christians when faced with opposition, when faced with persecution, when faced with affliction. And so they bail, we would say. They abandon their faith. They renounce their faith, if not by their words, by their lifestyles, which confirms then that their faith was never genuine. Therefore, these people, these are people who have never taken to heart the very words of Jesus. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 35. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will end up saving it. That's the way Jesus said it. The writer of Hebrews says it a different way. The writer of Hebrews calls this kind of cowardice and fear shrinking back. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 38 and 39. Hebrews 10. But my righteous one shall live by faith, true saving faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. But we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Faith that lasts. Now Jesus defined this shrinking back and thus, not, uh, be, uh, thus being a coward. He defines it as not continuing in his word in another place in scripture. John 8 verse 31. To be a coward means to not continue in my word. John 8 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. There's another place we see this. But again, said differently, it's in the parable of the four soils and the seed. You find it in Matthew 13, for example, the, probably the most famous version of it. It's also in Mark. In this parable, uh, Jesus tells about this sower who sows the seed, and the seed represents the truth of the gospel. It falls on different kinds of soil. It, it, it falls on, on hard, compact soil, and so it never even takes root, and that represents the people in the world who care nothing about the truth and don't want to hear it. It falls on a couple of different kinds of soil, some rocky soil and some shallow soil, and it, it looks like it springs up to a plant, but it dies away. Those people are never saved. The fourth soil. Jesus says this, on that soil, Matthew 13, verse 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the person who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, uh, brings forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The point of that is the gospel message in those who are the, the overcomers, those who are the ones who thirst after righteousness, those who will be the inhabitants of heaven forever. Those are the ones who hear the gospel and they respond to it. They don't shrink back, they endure in it, and they bring forth fruit. Every true believer does, and so in that parable, only the fourth soil represents true believers. And the fact is, true believers are given the strength to endure in their faith to the end. Paul tells uh, Timothy this way, 
he puts it in negative terms. He says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy, God has not made his people uh, cowards. They're, they're not those who shrink back. He hasn't given us that kind of spirit. He's given us power to live by and love and discipline. So the bottom line is this. If someone doesn't manifest steadfast endurance in their faith all the way to the end, then that person is not a true follower of Christ. They never were. Again, Jesus made this clear. Listen to Matthew 24, verse 13. Just very blunt. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. That's the cowardly who don't endure to the end. Uh, they, they fear the pressure of the world. They, they fear embarrassment. They, they, they fear being left out of worldly things. So when opposition comes to what they say they are, they shrink back. If they die in that state, there's no more opportunity. They're not in the eternal state in the new heaven. Next on the list, it says uh, the unbelieving, depending on your translation, the one I'm using says unbelieving. It's actually better translated here, unfaithful or untrustworthy. And there is a connection with that first term, the cowardly. Very similar. In Paul's writings, we find the same Greek term translated unbelievers. So it does refer to to those who are not believers, non-Christians. Examples of that. 2 Corinthians 6, where we are told not to be bound together, you know, with unbelievers, same term. Uh, Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 6, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Same term here in our verse in Revelation. But in our list here in Revelation, the term is applied more to professing Christians who deny their faith by their acts and their words And so it's pointing to a kind of disloyalty. So you see the connection there even with cowardice. So the point is that this kind of disloyalty excludes people from heaven. Now just a caution. I want to interject it here and probably should start the list with this caution. And I may say it again somewhere in the list. What I'm about to say applies to all these terms. This does not mean, and I'll just take this one, disloyalty. It does not refer here to disloyalty. That happens in points of time. In other words, any Christian may have a a moment like this. Instead, all the terms here in this list refer to life patterns. If a person is characterized in their life by one of these, that's the point. So if a person is characterized by this disloyalty to Christ then this is who they are as a habit of life. And Scripture makes a clear judgment. We don't make the judgment. Scripture makes the judgment. This person is not a believer. This disloyalty and unfaithfulness is certainly a contrast to the example of Christ that we have. Think about how he's referred to, even in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it refers to Jesus Christ as the faithful witness Revelation 19, 11, we saw it there. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. That's who Jesus is. And those who are followers of Jesus, that's going to overall characterize their life, a life of loyalty to him. But if not, then a person's not a true believer. If they die in that state, they're not in this city. The third group excluded from this eternal, holy city, it says, are the abominable. I have trouble saying that word sometimes. Abominable. You know, I put too many syllables in. Abominable. If I say it fast, I do better. Abominable. It's a very strong term, actually. You can translate it other ways. You can translate it vile. You can translate it polluted. You can translate it detestable. This is referring to people who are wholly caught up in the world system. They're wholly caught up in wickedness and uh, evil, extreme worldliness. We've seen this in Revelation already in chapter 17 
in connection with that city, Babylon, that'll be on earth during the tribulation, the headquarters of the Antichrist. That future city will be known for this term, its abominations. Listen to Revelation 17.5. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So the outcasts from heaven that are in this category is certainly going to include all those during the tribulation who were defiled through the worship of the beast and participating in Babylon's abominations. But any kind of person, not just in the tribulation, but those in the past, those now, if this characterizes their life, they're not someone who's just simply detestable in a point of time. They're not even just someone who's guilty of committing a particular detestable act in a point of time. These are persons who have allowed their very natures to be permeated with worldliness, to be permeated with the abominations that they practiced in some form throughout their lifetime. It was their way of life. Listen to verse 27. You can look ahead to the last verse of this chapter, chapter 21. It says, no one who practices abomination shall ever come into it, heaven. Practices. This is their life. Next on the list of non-inhabitants, murderers. Now, murderers have already been mentioned in Revelation, at least in the sense of those who follow the beast are participating in what uh, he orchestrates, the martyrdom of saints during the tribulation period. Martyrdom of the saints means murder of the saints. Revelation 17, verse 6. John saw Babylon, it says, drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So there's murderers during the tribulation period who murder Christians. But there have, of course, been many murderers in human history. So it raises a question. Can a murderer be forgiven? And the answer is yes. There will be in heaven some who committed murder in their life on earth, but who genuinely sorrowed over that sin, godly sorrow and repented and sought forgiveness. They may have still suffered the consequences of their act. But some biblical names come to mind, like David. He was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. But if someone is characterized, and here's the point here, if somebody is characterized by a total disregard for the dignity of human life, if somebody is characterized by a total disregard for the fact that all people, including babies in the womb, are made in the image of God, if someone's characterized by that and unrepentant of that, for that unrepentant person, all that awaits them in eternity is eternal judgment. No murderers in this city if they died in unrepentance. Fifth term, fornicators. This is a broad term. It's the Greek term uh, pornos, and so you can hear it. It's where we get our word pornography. But in Scripture, it's used of any kind of, of immorality. Just a broad stroke sort of word for immorality of any kind, whether it's committed um, before marriage or within marriage or outside marriage, homosexuality, bestiality, and so on. Pornos. And again, here it refers to people characterized by unrepentant immorality. It doesn't matter if someone puts up the front of being a believer. If they're living in immorality, if that's the bent of their life and there's no repentance, they cannot expect to be a part of the bliss that we studied last time, the bliss of the new creation. Sixth category of outcasts, sorcerers. You could translate that word magicians. It's not meaning those who do little magic acts with cards and, you know, and things like that. You might do some of those, I don't know. It doesn't mean that. And I've commented on this term before. It's the Greek term pharmakos. And yes, it is where we get our words pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. 
and so forth. But this is not in scripture referring to those entities that we know as pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. <clears throat> it's not referring to the use of medication, you know, for those who, who are sick in some way. Here in this list, it points very specifically to those known for using mind-altering drugs, especially as a practice, and especially in the practice of occultic religion, sorcery. This noun frequently occurs in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old, Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint, the Hebrew Old Testament, Aramaic, whatever, Hebrew and Aramaic, translated into Greek, called the Septuagint. And each time this word occurs there, it's in connection with a false religion that worships something or worships someone other than the one true and living God. So here's some examples of it just from the Old Testament. Exodus 7, verse 11. Pharaoh called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, that's who they were, did the same things, some miraculous acts, you know, with their secret Secret arts, it says, demonically inspired secret arts. Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices witchcraft or who interprets omens or a sorcerer. Daniel 2, verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, to tell the king his dreams. Malachi 3, verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness, meaning judgment, against the sorcerers. We find it in the New Testament well, as well. In Galatians 5, it's in the list, in Galatians 5, 20, of the deeds of the flesh. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and so on. All those represent fleshliness. Now, back in Revelation 9, we saw it there. Uh, in the discussion of the sixth trumpet judgment. In that trumpet judgment, sorcery is going to play a large part in the future delusion of the people of the world. Revelation 9, 21, and they did not repent of their sorceries. Revelation 18, we find it in the lament over Babylon's destruction. Revelation 18, verse 23, all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Point being, God obviously takes a very dim view of sorcery and anything like divination and witchcraft and so forth. If somebody is involved in all that and it characterizes their life and they, they never come to repentance over that, then they don't go to heaven. We come to the seventh category of outcasts here, those who are idolaters. Idolaters. Idolatry has been a problem throughout human history, it seems like. It is a present problem, but idolatry is more than just the mere worship of a carved image or a, a something printed or something sculpted. John Calvin is the one who said the human heart is a factory of idols. People make idols out of money and pleasure and fame and ease and popularity and comfort and security, marriage, family, sex careers, sports, hobbies, idols of, out of their opinions, their goals, make idols out of other people, the list is endless. And we're warned against the danger of idolatry in Scripture. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. He's writing to Christians, guard, guard yourself from any form of idolatry, any idol that your heart might form. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is explaining something he had said previously to the Corinthians that they needed to, to separate, you know, from um, idolaters. And he was talking about people in the church professing to be Christians, and so he has to explain that to them. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10, 11, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world that you have to separate from them, or with the covetous and the swindlers, or with idolaters. And he says something very practical, you'd have to go out of the world to separate from all of them. I mean, we do business with them, we interact with them, we live next door to them. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. So that is a connection with what we know as the practice of church discipline. 
So we're warned against that. And in the future, in the book of Revelation, you see in chapter 9, under the reign of the beast, idolatry is going to be not the exception, it'll be the rule. Revelation 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood. They didn't repent of their idolatry. So yes, can a Christian be guilty in points of time of idolatry? Yes. We have to constantly be on guard of that, making idols even out of good things. But if this is what characterizes someone, this is the sum total of their life, they are an idolater. They live controlled by those things they make idols out of. This says the new Jerusalem has no room for them. Christ is not preparing a place for them in the Father's house. Well, the eighth one, the last one, the final group, catalog of sinners who have no place in heaven in the future eternal heaven, all liars. There is definitely a stigma in scripture associated with lying. Our world doesn't think much about it. It does sometimes, but not all the time. It's so common, it's accepted, and it's assumed, you know, in many cases. I'm reminded of that that scene in Acts 5, you know, in the days of the early church where Ananias and his wife lied about the sale of their property and how much they made on it and all that. Acts 5, verse 3, but Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Colossians 3, 9, we're warned, do not lie to one another because you've laid aside the old self with its practices. You're a believer, that's your identity, so we're to love truth, avoid all forms of deceit and lying. And we've seen it in Revelation, just like these others. We've already seen references to lying. If you go all the way back to Revelation 2 in that section about the churches, you know, the letters to the churches, in the letter to the church of Ephesus, the term liars is not used, but the concept is there because uh, it talks about false teachers, and that's what false teachers do. They lie. Revelation 2, verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. In other words, that's just another way to say you, 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 you evaluated these false teachers and you found them to be liars. There's another uh, letter there in uh, chapter 3, verse 9, the one to Philadelphia. It mentions those of the synagogue of Satan that says, who lie. So yeah, lying is a problem, dishonesty, deceit. And people can lie about all sorts of things. In our list here, associated with all these, it even includes those who lie about their relationship with Christ. It's even the lie of denying Christ and saying that Christ is not who he is. That's a lie. And this is a tremendous contrast to another group of people we saw in Revelation chapter 14, the 144,000 witnesses. Listen to what it says about them. Revelation 14 verse 5, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. The point again is not something that happens at a point in time. It's talking about those whose lives are characterized by deceit, characterized by lies. They give evidence then that they're not saved. And without genuine repentance of that in this life, then they cannot enter the heavenly city in the next life. So just to summarize all that, it's a list of those excluded from heaven, which means it's a list of those who have not repented of their sin and expressed true saving faith in the Lord. By the way, there's other lists like this in Scripture. It's not that this is meant to be an exhaustive list. I mean, the nuances that flow out of these terms can end up being exhaustive. But just think about the other list of Scripture. Romans chapter 1 is almost a, a list in and of itself. But listen to the list in Romans 1, starting in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, 
God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Being filled with, listen to this, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they know the ordinance of God, the law of God, the truth, those who practice such things are worthy of death. And they even give hearty approval to those who are like them. That's a very long list. There's other lists. Not quite as long. 1 Corinthians 6 is a list starting in verse 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, the heavenly city? Do not be de- de- Do not be deceived, and some of the terms are the same we've already read in Revelation. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Not if that's who they are. Ephesians 5, verse 5. This you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. There's that inheritance idea again. 2 Timothy 3, talking about the last days, starting in verse 2. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. One more, just Revelation 22, verse 15. It's in the next chapter. Outside the city, it says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Listen, Scripture is clear that we're all sinners. We're born that way, fallen. But if we don't come to recognize our, our fleshliness and our sin and re- repent of that and acknowledge that and in, in humility seek God's forgiveness, then we're excluded from heaven. But it's not that they're not anywhere at all. Verse 8 continues, they will be somewhere. Verse 8 tells us their end. Verse 8 says, their part will be in the lake of fire, the lake, rather, that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That little phrase, their part, that's talking about inheritance again. So, Believers, the overcomers, those who thirst for righteousness, those who have been forgiven of their sin, who are following Christ, seeking to grow, to to be more like Christ, acknowledging our sinfulness along the way in the points of time and living a life of repentance and confession before the Lord, we inherit eternal life. These inherit something. They're part of the eternal inheritance is something that's quite a contrast to those of the saved. These outcasts inherit the eternal lake of fire. Scripture is clear that there is an eternal penalty for rejection of the Lord, for rejection of his truth. It's described in various ways in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 34, verse 10. It talks about the fire there. It will not be quenched night or day, its smoke will go up forever. Isaiah 66, verse 24, adds another element. Their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched. In Revelation chapter 14, it builds on that Old Testament picture. It says in Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Now, notice in our verse 8 that it adds this word brimstone. Uh, Brimstone is an element of eternal hell. Uh, Just so you'll know, it's an ancient term that equates to our term sulfur, basically. In Scripture, brimstone is 
mixed with fire as this well-known instrument of God's wrath. It definitely connects with what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Genesis 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone, burning sulfur, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Psalm 11, verse 6, upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. The portion meaning inheritance. Isaiah 30, verse 33, the breath of the Lord like a torrent of brimstone sets it afire. And there's others. This was also seen in, earlier in Revelation, Revelation 14, verse 10. Future punishment of all those who worship the beast Revelation 14, verse 10, that person will be tormented with fire and brimstone. They're not annihilated. There is a false view that's taught out there that heaven's eternal, but hell's just annihilation. No, tormented with fire and brimstone forever. And here's an additional thought based on what we've seen already in Revelation. Those on the list who are not the overcomers and not the thirsters after spiritual things, they'll forever be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which means they will forever be with somebody else. Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Because in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, it says this, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And then Revelation 20, verse 10, Satan and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Those who joke about hell, joining their buddies in hell, don't understand what this is. This is their inheritance, and it's a terrible inheritance. For all those who don't want the Lord and don't want his ways and his truth. And scripture calls this at the end of verse 8, it's the second death. The second death. That's been mentioned in Revelation. In Revelation 2 verse 11, the church to Smyrna, it says the one who's the overcomer will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 20 verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these. The second death has no power. This eternal death. Revelation 20 verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. But you could summarize it all another way. Those who are not in heaven who inherit the lake of fire are those whose names are missing from the book of life. Revelation 20, verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What a contrast. The wicked will suffer eternal torment in hell and the righteous the eternal bliss of heaven. These are the last words, by the way, of the one sitting on the throne. You'll remember that's who was speaking a couple of times along the way and here. In Revelation 21, um, there's going to be something said from Jesus as an, as an appeal. And then in chapter 22, verse 11, this glorious benediction from the lips of Jesus. But essentially, these are the last words of the one sitting upon the throne. Well, the vision doesn't end there, gratefully. I mean, for us studying it. Uh, John received this continual uh, information about this capital city of heaven, the New Jerusalem, which is central to the vision here. And now it's described in far more detail than the rest of the eternal state. Now, just remember, I pointed out along the way that the book of Hebrews mentions this glorious capital city of heaven uh, this is what the, the people in, the, uh, you know, in the, the chapter 11, the chapter about faith, the hall of faith, like Abraham, it's what they were looking for. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, just his earthly inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived, lived as an alien in the land of promise, I mean, never really fully got it, 
as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. It says in verse 10 of Hebrews 11, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so as the epistle closes out, closes out in Hebrews 13, verse 14, the author reminded his readers of this, for here we do not have a lasting city. This, we just taste our relationship with the Lord in a sense. We don't have the lasting city here, but we're seeking the city which is to come. So this is what was revealed to the uh, uh, Apostle John and described by John here in this vision, the very city that Abraham and the rest of the redeemed have anticipated by faith. And this brings us to the seventh point overall in our outline now, the facts about this eternal state. Number seven, it will be unique in appearance. It will be unique in appearance. Now again, the unfolding of events here um, has included that thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth in order to fulfill certain promises. That part of the vision in Revelation chapter 20, at the beginning of that, was actually the last time that an angel was mentioned, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, uh, until we get to chapter 21. But this part, it's mentioned literally again, specifically, that an angel, there's been an allusion to an angel here about a voice, but now it specifically tells us again that an angel is going to appear and calls call John's attention back to the heavenly city itself. So the vision has included this sobering look of, of those who are the outcast that are not the inhabitants of heaven, but now he brings his focus back to the heavenly city and begins to give him like a personal tour of the city. So we're going to take the tour with him here. Now this particular angel that we see in verse 9, he was involved in the unfolding of the tribulation judgments. If you'll remember, the judgments were in these three telescoping series. You remember the first, it was the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and then as a climax, the bowl judgments. Well, verse 9 tells us that this angel was involved in those bowl judgments. Verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, as noted in verse 2, back in our study of verse 2 of chapter 21, uh, the bride, uh, the new the Jerusalem is described as the bride because of its occupants, the ones there. The occupants of heaven are the bride of the lamb. And so because of that, now the whole city is just referred to that way as the bride. Because the city's made up of the bride. And I mentioned last time that that title in Scripture was originally given to the church, the bride of Christ. But now in this vision in chapter 21, I mentioned to you that it's enlarged to encompass now all the redeemed of all the ages. In the future New Jerusalem, all the redeemed will be forever united to God and to the Lamb as the bride. And it's the idea of a bride united to a bridegroom. And is further described here as the wife, the wife of the Lamb. Because the marriage has already taken place. That's Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So the city now is the, is the bride, the wife, and the angelic tour guide is now going to show John this city. And the first stop to get a more specific look at this was at a high place. It was a place that John would, have the, would give John the best view. Verse 10, and he carried me away, that angel, carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So this, this, this city was coming down, so the angel puts John in an even better location to see this, this high place, and, and to watch this city descend the heavenly Jerusalem, now becoming the new Jerusalem, descending to the earth. What a sight. And again, it's not that heaven's being created now, it's the descent of what's already been existing in eternity past 
in this future moment, this city is going to become permanently then situated in the center of the new heaven and new earth. And so the, we find some more detailed information of this capital city. We're going to see that it's marked by several unique features. And so this week and one more sermon on chapter 21 next week, we'll look at heaven. Uh, we'll see these features. There's several of them. Tonight we'll only have time for one. Here's Here's a unique feature. This city is marked by, first of all, brilliant glory. Brilliant glory. This will be the most distinguishing characteristic of the capital city of eternity. Verse 11, having the glory of God. Now, this only makes sense. After all, this city is the eternal throne of God, the eternal almighty God. It will therefore be filled with the glory of the Father and the Lamb. And that's what Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He prayed for this future and full expression of God's glory that we're going to live in the midst of. Just remind you of the wording of that prayer, John 17 verse 24. Father, I mean, he prayed other things, but this is this part of the prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, the true believers, will be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. And we will. The glory of God, the glory of the triune God here is going to be unlimited. It's going to be unconfined. And we'll see this a little bit tonight, but more so next time in more detail. It's a glory that's going to be flashing in a way that's hard to describe from the city throughout the entire universe, the new universe. Now, what does it mean when we talk about the glory of God? Well, ultimately, the glory of God is the summation, the sum total of his attributes, the essential essence of his being. All the attributes that are the attributes of God, how scripture talks about his perfect holiness and his justice and his goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace. Whatever are the attributes of God, the sum total of that is his glory. And at times in the Bible, there have been glimpses of his glory in the form of light, blazing light. We're going to be living in a city of blazing light. Exodus 13, verse 21, we'll taste of it there. The Lord was going before them in the wilderness, guiding them. How did he do it? In a pillar of fire by night to give them light. That was just a little bit of his glory there, you know, the fire by night, that they might travel by day and by night. Exodus 24, verse 17, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Psalm 104, the, the poet puts it in poetic terms. You look at the Lord, you know, in, 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 um, in words at least. Psalm 104 verse, 104, verse 2, it says, God, you cover yourself with light as with a cloak, as with a, a garment, light. Ezekiel 10, verse 4, then the glory of the Lord went up and the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Just a small taste of it. Habakkuk 3 verse 4, his radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand. Just one more in Luke chapter 2 verse 9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Remember that scene in Luke 2? We hear it at Christmas, you know, light a lot. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. And that was just a small taste. This brilliance of light that represents the sum total of the essence of God's being. It's a brilliance that will radiate out of the new Jerusalem throughout the entire universe forever. The scripture tells us that that brilliance is seen manifested in Jesus as well. Again, a taste of the glory. It says in John 1 verse 14, we saw his glory. Matthew 17, verse 2, he was transfigured 
before them, remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? And his face, just for a moment there, they got a glimpse of, of, of who he really was. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And when the Lord comes back in power and glory, Matthew 24, verse 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's why Paul told, told Timothy this about God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, he alone possesses immortality and he dwells in unapproachable light. I mean, how do you wrap your mind around this? God has revealed his glory along the way in certain ways, and disobedient, rebellious people have rejected him. Even Christ, the embodiment of God's glory in human form, was rejected. But here in heaven, in eternity, radiating from the new Jerusalem will be the brilliance, and you could say it this way, it's the brilliance of the full manifestation of God's glory. And to describe it even more fully, the effect of God's glory radiating from the new Jerusalem, John notes this in verse 11, her brilliance, the city's brilliance because of the glory of God, he says, was like a costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now the term for brilliance here is, is a word that means it's something from which light radiates, okay? And uh, it, it's the term used about the creation of the world in the Greek version of the creation. So again, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Genesis chapter 1, when it says God created, you know, the, the, the lights, they use this, grill, this Greek term. And so he literally created the brilliant objects, okay, that we know as the, the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth. One writer put it this way, the heavenly city, just trying to figure out what it looked like to John, if we put it in our terms, the heavenly city must have appeared like this giant light bulb with the brilliant light of God's glory just streaming out of it. But it wasn't streaming through glass. He says it, it looked to John as if the light was coming through this stone like jasper. The city appeared as one gigantic stone, you know, precious stone. Now, we have to throw out whatever you think you know Jasper is because the Jasper we have in our world, which I don't know that I've ever seen any, the Jasper in our verse does not refer to the modern stone that we know as Jasper. Uh, what we call Jasper, and I only know this by studying it, uh, it's a stone that's opaque, that means light can't shine through it, okay? It's opaque. This term, jasper, is a transliteration of the Greek term that just means translucent stone. And so the best way for us to describe what John was seeing, to put it in something that we would better understand, John is calling jasper in this passage what we would likely know as diamond, a diamond, a costly translucent stone. A diamond is very costly, and the more costly it is, the more pure it is, the more clear it is, and so forth, unblemished it is. That makes it costly, and the point is that heaven's capital city is pictured as this huge, the best way we could put it in our words, what he sees is a huge flawless, perfect diamond, refracting the brilliant, blazing glory of God throughout the new heaven and the new earth. And what's really interesting is that unbelievable brilliance due to the glory of God there was something that the prophet Isaiah foresaw. Isaiah 60, verse 19. No longer will you have the sun for light by day. Nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have Yahweh, literally is what it says. You will have Yahweh for an everlasting light and your God 
for your glory. So that's the first mark of this city, the first very unique feature that gives this city a very unique appearance. We'll have to stop there, but what's coming up, it talks about the size of the city, the walls of the city, the gates of the city. I mean, the shape of the city. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's believable if you believe the word of God. No doubt, it'll be amazing beyond words to live in this city, the presence of God's glory in heaven, in the midst of all the glory and enjoying fellowship with him. Him dwelling amongst us. I mean, really, that is the best part of of heaven. It's not, wow, what light. It's being in his presence. We, We know his presence now. I mean, we know fellowship with him now, right? But it's imperfect. It's sin-hindered fellowship, we could even call it. But there, it's going to be full. It's going to be complete. It's going to be unlimited. No wonder the psalmist Asaph penned this in Psalm 73, verse 25. He had a glimpse of understanding of the value of the eternal state in heaven. He says in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth either. I mean, the taste that we have now, the fellowship we have now is wonderful. But boy, look at what we can look forward to. That says something about death too, right? Just a reminder that death, what is presented as the final enemy, death is is not victorious over us. Death ends up merely being the vehicle that ushers us into the presence of God. If it happens before all this, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the presence of God. And then part of this city, then forever as well. And once we're in his presence, John says in 1 John 3, verse 2, that we will see him just as he is. I mean, to have this kind of view, an, uh, uh, an unveiled view of God, that's impossible for mortal people, sinners. No living person has ever seen God in the fullness of his glory. And we know that because Scripture says that. 1 John 4, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. Not in the fullness of his glory. In fact, exposure to his presence now would mean instant death for any living person. Exodus 33, verse 20, God said that. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. That's now. Mortal man cannot see this. Scripture even says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, that he's invisible. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God glory and honor forever. But in heaven, God's people will see the glory of God unhindered because we will be perfectly holy, not mortal anymore. We'll be given an eternal and expanded vision of God in his glory. So there you have the uh, Maybe the reason why Paul was so hard-pressed when he said those words in Philippians 1, 23, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. I mean, that's kind of understated, don't you think? It's better there. It's unbelievable there. But I'm hard-pressed because by staying, I can still preach the gospel and minister to you. you know? But he understood what's going to be there is far surpasses what's here. I've told many people along the way who have lost loved ones who knew Christ and are in heaven, we grieve, but if they were given the chance to come back and be with you, they're going to say no. They're not going to give this up. And so we can rejoice over them. This is what awaits believers. The final hell awaits resurrected unbelievers. For us, universe of eternal happiness for them, a terrifying place of unbearable torment, unrelieved misery away from God's presence. All goes back to what happens in this lifetime, where the person comes to say, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I want to follow Christ and live for him. 
then they can have the hope of heaven. Let's pray. Father, this tour that we're taking is incredible. And it's all you want us to know right now of it is what you give us in your word. And so we're grateful for it. Because even with this little bit we've studied, I mean, we, we can't even wrap our minds around this. So how could, we, how could we end up having all of our questions answered? We wouldn't be able to stand it. It'd be too much. But Lord, we thank you for the glory of what we're reading. May our hearts be encouraged to know that regardless of what happens in this world, this world was never meant to fulfill us, that our fulfillment comes in heaven. We will receive our inheritance. You've pledged it to us by the presence of your spirit in our lives now, but we look forward to the full inheritance. I pray for anyone who has not come to seek the forgiveness of their sin now, that they might have the joy of fellowship now and the hope of heaven now, that they might have the assurance that they're going to go to the eternal city when they die. Lord, would you be gracious and merciful to them to open their hearts, to surrender, to give up, go in their own way, and to follow you. In our wonderful Savior's name, amen.